If it is true for you, it is true for someone else, and you are no longer alone. This from Colson Whitehead's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Nickel Boys, which we'll be talking about all this month on Literary Guys. I'm author Zachary Kellyan. And I'm Dr. Gordon McCallan. Thanks for joining us here today. So I assume we're having a lighthearted romp through the American South here. Is that what this story is about? Yeah, this is going to be easy breezy. You know, we're, we usually tackle such really heavy, heady conversations. And I just don't see the need to do that for this one. For those of you who have read this book, you know that we are being facetious. This is actually a very deep, introspective book dealing with some very troubling issues. But I'm just going to put it out there right away that this book is masterfully written. Yeah. And if it had not been, I would have found it very difficult to read and not instead the page turner that this book absolutely is. And I say page turner because Turner is one of the two major characters of this book. Well done. Well done. Yeah. I mean, we are dealing with a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner who is still at the height of his activity and his prowess in the literary world. So it's really exciting that we kind of get books from Colson Whitehead every couple of years now, because this guy is really a master at his craft, and it is such a joy to read his words. It's a sparse prose style, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. But I think that lends itself especially well to the topics that we'll be tackling with the Nickel Boys. Those of you who have read it, probably already familiar with it, but of course this is a fictionalized account of a very real school in Florida that kind of made headlines, I don't know, maybe five, six years ago, Mm -hmm. when they started uncovering these unmarked graves at this supposed boys' reform school in Florida and learned that it had actually been a house of horrors for many, many decades. The Nickel Academy is a fictional version of that, but the horrors that these boys faced are unfortunately very true to life. So in the four episodes that we're going to be tackling with this book, we're going to try and break down some of the key characters here. We're going to talk about the systemic racism, which is on display here. We're going to talk about the characters growing and, unfortunately, finding ways to live in this horrific environment. And then we're going to get to the the ending, which is an amazing work of art in and of itself. Yeah. I know in the show that we often encourage you to read the books before tuning in here. I think with this one, it's particularly important. Mm -hmm. We're going to try our best to set some context here. But really, I don't think that the gravity of what we're talking about here is going to be necessarily expressed perfectly well by Zach and myself. I think the book does a really good job with it. And I think, as you said, that sparse prose style is something which is really key to the timber of how this is conveyed. Mm -hmm. I I think that the way in which this is conveyed is actually part of the story itself. Mm -hmm. We are being told this story through, not necessarily a first-person narrator, but I do sense that the way it's being told, it feels like someone's difficult memories of the past. And given that almost all this book does occur in the far past of the character's uh, that we hear about in the present tense at the beginning of the book, that th- that's kind of important. And so we're going to be looking at a timeline here 
and a storytelling mechanism which is all over the place, jumps back and forth in time. But it does focus primarily on the time at the Nickel Academy. Yeah, and if you're thinking about this prose style, and I think it's really important to kind of note, um, this actually mirrors, uh, Colson Whitehead doesn't always write this sparingly, but it mirrors his same prose style for his other Pulitzer Prize winner, The Underground Railroad, which he took that kind of detached almost minimalist approach to some of the horrors in the Underground Railroad from actual former slave testimonials because they themselves as witnesses to these atrocities were probably a little emotionally detached from the world as well. And I think it really works well here with the Nickel Boys because you've got a narrator who we are hearing from in his adulthood. He's now living in Manhattan and is seeing some success with his life and who really struggles to look back on these times and doesn't want to remember the Nickel Academy, doesn't want to remember even a few of the good moments and good friendships he might have made there. It's kind of something he would much prefer to push aside. And I think any of us who have ever dealt with trauma Hopefully none of you listening have ever dealt with trauma on this level. Mm -hmm. And certainly Dr. McAllen and I cannot relate to basically any of the struggles that these boys face in this novel. But if you've ever had something bad happen to you, I think you can relate to that need to distance yourself from it. Or at least that temporary desire to pretend like it didn't happen. So I think for the sake of today's discussion, we're going to mostly bypass the framing story here that actually begins the novel and really jump right into the story of Elwood yeah. and his time actually here prior to going to the Nickel Academy because it's almost like, I'd say it's 50 pages of character development mm-hmm. outside of this horrific environment, which I think stylistically is a great choice. I do but, too, yeah. I think, and I the character of Elwood is just so endearing. You know, you want to root for this kid because even before he's kind of screwed over by society and sent to the Nickel Academy, we see this young kid who wants to believe the best in everyone. He, very early in his life, is introduced to the recordings of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and I think he really relates to that message of unconditional love that Dr. King was trying to spread at the time. And it is so endearing and, of course, ultimately so tragic that we have this young boy who could have made the most of himself, who could have been a great American leader, who could have done anything he put his mind to. He's smart. He's got that thirst and desire for knowledge. And no matter what life throws at him, he still manages to find some good angles. He still manages to hold out hope that some adults any adult is going to actually believe in him, actually give him the opportunities he know he deserved and has earned. So, I mean, I just can't say enough about Elwood as a character. I think it could, in in the hands of a lesser author, if we're talking about race, come across as the stereotype that we sometimes see in books about race. So-and-so was a credit to his race. But I, I think Elwood is not into that stereotype. For me, Elwood is, he's got his own flaws. He's got um, some foibles that perhaps he could have avoided some of the things that happened to him later on. But the core dignity of Elwood is something that I think inspires all of us who read it and I think is necessary for the novel because while it is telling the story of these boys going through Nickel Academy, I think it's of course mirroring society as a whole and very much telling that story of what society has done to so many young men, particularly young men of color in America today or America historically. The optimism that Elwood has and the hope that real change is coming is actually one of the most heartbreaking parts 
of his young life. Like he's waiting for that emancipation to truly occur. And in the middle school play in which he's in, he actually plays the role of the emancipator, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. And it's interesting to watch how even his role working in the small convenience store bodega or mm-hmm. whatever it is mirrors what was going on in society at the time that it was this notion of yeah things may have gotten a little bit better but you know you still need to respect your station for lack of a better word and I think there's a great anecdote in there about how he went after the two white boys who were stealing from his shop and there was nothing wrong with what he did but of course for him personally it did not end well and he ended up getting beaten up as a result of that Mm -hmm. and people around him were like yeah that's what's gonna happen which was a huge wake-up call for someone who was embroiled as you say into this sort of idealized vision of what the civil rights movement was actually accomplishing Mm -hmm. and don't don't get me wrong like they accomplished a great amount but I think his expectations were entirely out of whack yeah and I think one of the great nuances of this novel is especially early on not every adult is a villain the bodega owner one of Elwood's teachers Mm -hmm. there are adults who take some interest in him try to give him some positive guidance try to open some doors for him but even they can only do so much because racism at this time as it is today is systemic and you see that you see even good people who are only willing to do so much without rocking the boat and maybe that's one of the greatest evils of all because there's the people that we meet later at the nickel academy obviously probably self-select to go there the adults who who Mm -hmm. run that horrible horrible place they're just maybe just bad people But I think early on in the novel, we see a lot of good people who probably don't go far enough to help Elwood. And I think that that's one of the great tragedies of the novel, too, is there's so many opportunities to get this kid off this train that's just barreling down a track that's not going to end well. But as is the case with many young American men, adults don't intercede soon enough. There's a wonderful mirror relationship that exists. And we'll jump ahead a little bit here in the book. But you brought up, I believe it's Mr. Hill. is the teacher that Mr. Hill is someone who is proactively interceding. Mm -hmm. He recognizes Elwood for who he is, the capability he has, and also the ability to connect into the civil rights movement. In fact, we see it at the school, but we see it again at the bodega because that's where he runs into him in the summer, kind of like in plain clothes outside of the school environment. We see that, and then we have this evil mirror image of this character at Nickel, who is the teacher who gives false hope. Yeah. He tells Elwood, yeah, 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 I know we're teaching all of this remedial math and English, and frankly, a lot of the students can't read at all. This is brought up. And mathematics actually becomes a topic later on in the book, but... Elwood is crying out. He's not even waiting for someone to intercede. He's saying that this is nonsense, that I'm capable of so much more. And this teacher, instead of being honest, which would be sad, but he would still be being honest that he's not going to go teach. He holds out hope for Elwood that he's going to get him into more advanced studies. That, I think, is just a terrible thing to do to a kid of this age. And I think that it's fascinating that Elwood being the person who he is that he takes whatever opportunity he has to further his own education. We see him Mm -hmm. reading, finding books, and digging deep into whatever it is he can to expand his worldview. 
there's that really dark moment when he's being taken. Um, I think he's in a truck or something with two white children, and they're going into Nickel Academy for the first time. And from the outside, from the exterior, the buildings look really nice. And he, he actually thinks it looks like a college campus and gets excited. Despite everything that life has thrown at him, he still has this glimmer of hope. Well, maybe this is going to be a good place for me. Maybe I'm going to actually get a right, chance right, to right. learn here. Yeah, it's, it's brutal. There's a really distinct recurring theme here of expectation versus reality. Yeah. We see it with the civil rights movement. We see it with this teacher. But there's an example that happens in the earlier, happier times of this book, which I think also hits on this exact same story, which is the example with the encyclopedias. Yeah. Do you want to tell our listeners? Yeah, so um, if memory serves, Elwood is working at the hotel that his grandmother also works at. That is true. And uh, is, is, is washing dishes. And the back of the house staff kind of challenges him to these dishwashing competitions, which is basically just getting him to do their work for them. He doesn't recognize that at the time. No, he thinks that he is being lauded for some actual accomplishment and that they admire his ability to wash these dishes thoroughly and efficiently. I, I actually learned this from the novel too, so I can't even fault Elwood for not knowing. They have uh, one of those sample travel encyclopedia collections that a traveling salesman might bring along, and they're going to give them to Elwood. His thirst for knowledge is so much. If he could just get those encyclopedias in his hands, doesn't matter what the system might hold against him, he can teach himself. So he's really incentivized by this. And of course, as we learn, as Elwood learns, traveling encyclopedia salesman only brought a chapter of the encyclopedias with them and all the other books are just blank pages for show and you know the fact that he gets his hopes up for such a simple thing he's not hoping for a trip to disney world he's not hoping for some you know fancy new video game system or something he just wants to learn it's the simplest most basic human right someone can have that's all he's asking from the world and time and time again his hopes are set up only to be dashed So I think it's got to be intentional that we keep having these moments that occur throughout the book where his expectations and hopes are dashed. Because by the end of the book, he just wants to get away. It isn't about betterment. It isn't about anything but survival Mm. and escape. And that is, it's essentially very sad. The good news is is that some of the things that he did learn early on do affect his thinking and I think ultimately make him a better person for it. His learning and listening on repeat to the words of Dr. Martin Luther King actually affect a lot of the decisions that he chooses to make in the last quarter of this book and sticking up for what he thinks is right. That's very noble. And even though I don't think this is any sort of spoiler to our listeners that things are not going to end up well here in this book, but I respect him for a life that was at least attempted to be lived well. I've got a quote here that kind of relates to that reoccurring topic of escape, be it escape through education to advance one's situation in life, escape from the Nickel Academy, escape from the South, escape from the suppression, that I think kind of might be a good launching point for us to have a more in-depth conversation. Go for it. To forbid the thought of escape, even the slightest butterfly thought of escape, was to murder one's humanity. And I think what I imagine Colson Whitehead's trying to do here is for those of us who maybe didn't grow up as African-American boys in the Jim Crow era South is to help us understand why that concept of, you know what, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. 
just get it done. That fallacy of the American dream that it's there for everyone, it's not there for Elwood. He tries everything a human being could do, and it's continually, tragically thrown in his face each and every time. And I think that's a reality for many Americans, certainly back then and even today. And I kind of wanted to talk to you about that because I feel like that's a real masculine thing that we hear all the time. You know what? Just suck it up. Get it done. You can do anything you put your mind to. And I don't know that that's true for everyone. I've got to agree. I don't think that it is true for everybody. I think the realization of that fact is something which has really been fueling a lot of support recently in a number of new civil rights movements. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think that this is really, to get into for a moment, Black Lives Matter. I think this is really at the core of a lot of the messages that are coming out as far as like, white people, go educate yourself. It's really interesting that part of the activism is about education, which is to me, great. It is to say, you need to go out and look, you need to read, you need to observe. And what you're going to find is exactly what you're saying here, which is that these opportunities do not exist. And that the American dream and the American work ethic is so imbued in all of us from a young age that it sort of is self-fulfilling that, well, to be American is to work hard and take advantage of every opportunity that is afforded you. And if you do that, that will lead to this American dream. But the reality is that's not true. Right. Elwood is everything we want our American youths to be. Everything that we believe and hold dear in this country. And yet this country not only didn't fulfill its promise to him, this country, as we see throughout the course of this book, actively denied him that promise. And I think that that is a true reality for many people. And we talk about education, and I think you're right. I think especially as white people, both Dr. McCann and I identify as white, it's important to go out and educate yourself. I don't think that there's any shame in that. I don't think anyone who maybe misses the mark and maybe does feel like, hey, anybody can achieve anything, it's America. I don't think there's anything wrong with thinking that if that's how you grew up. If you didn't grow up in a diverse area, if you grew up in a thought bubble of sorts, be it in a small town or even a large city where you didn't have a lot of diversity of thought, It's incumbent on all of us to try to learn more about anyone else's experiences. You know, I grew up with you and certainly have seen your journey from afar, but I have no idea what it's like to be a gay man unless I talk to you about it, unless I hear your truths, not as I observe them as an outsider, but as I hear your truths from your own experiences. And even then, I can only partially understand, but I think every one of us owes it to humanity to try to understand and to try to empathize. And I think when we see some of these debates about how racism's over and there's no longer racism in the United States, I think that's a profound lack of empathy from anyone because if you really do the minimalist amount of research, if you have an actual conversation with somebody, an authentic conversation with somebody who has had a different experience and is of a different race than you, you'll start to see things very differently very quickly. So I think this is part of what is inspiring the current nomenclature of being an ally Mm. versus just being a bystander. Yeah. That I really appreciate what you're saying. Like, you care to ask tough questions. You care to ask me things. Like, I consider you an ally, so it's because you have empathy. It's because you care about more than the surface value of what might be the easy explanation of something or just kind of the statement that was never made and was actually untrue in the end. I think that that's really part of, you know, again, what's going on here, which is this is about education, about 
the fact that there are things going on that we just don't internalize. And I think whenever we see a book that has some very clear villains in it, yeah. you know, it, we need to ask ourselves, where do we separate the line between evil and ignorance? Mm-hmm. And I think later on, and I think we can talk about this some more, that there's a really powerful chapter right near the end where they talk about tactics which were handed down from generation to generation yeah. about dealing with the African-American students in the population. Mm-hmm. And I found it to be one of the most difficult and troubling parts of the, the book to read yeah. because it wasn't that it was full of details. There, there were a few, but it was just about how, as you pointed out before, this disassociated voice talking about something which is so easy to imagine. And that's, again, the brilliance of, of Whitehead's narrative and his prose. Two-time Pulitzer Prize winner here. It's a literary technique called hyperdiegesis, where he just gives you the tip of the iceberg and he trusts you as the reader to imply more. He doesn't need to dwell on some of these tragedies. He doesn't need to go into the history of systemic racism in the South and in America. He can just give you these little furtive hints throughout the novel. And I think that that is far more impactful if you're an active reader. And I think that's why he deserves all the accolades he's been getting. So since you brought up the notion of masculinity, I know in previous episodes, in previous books, we've talked about how you and I may have some different preconceived notions Mm -hmm. about masculinity, which is fine. And that I know I tend towards the more society kind of man about town kind of masculinity. A bon vivant. Bon vivant, yeah. But at the heart of that, I often say that it's about a man who cares. You got to care about something. Mm -hmm. You, You have to be able to go deep into a topic and to be able to understand it and to understand nuance, to understand people around you, how they interact. And what's interesting here with Elwood is that he's never given that opportunity to be a bon vivant or a man about town, anything but. But I would argue that even in my notion of masculinity, that I think Elwood is arguably one of the most masculine characters in that exact same right. Mm -hmm. That sort of caring man, I know we, we meet him as a young man for the bulk of this book, but he is someone who cares intellectually about himself cares about others. He is a man for others, as, uh, as one might say. He is willing to do the legwork, be it reading books, be it washing dishes, be it whatever it is that he needs to do, because he knows that that will better him and those around him. And so I think even though I have a preconceived notion of what my concept of masculinity typically adds up to mm-hmm. in a privileged society... I actually think that Elwood is one of the best characters of actually living up to the type of masculinity that I hold very dear. It's a lot harder to maintain the belief that he has in justice and in doing the right thing and having faith in others and lifting others up when nothing in his life reinforces that. Mm -hmm. And I do agree with you that my definition of a man is a man who maintains his belief even in the face of adversity. Mm Mm-hmm. And as a man, I think there's a long-standing societal place that men have held of being in control, of being in power. And to me, the definition of a man is one who doesn't try to maintain that power, doesn't try to actively keep others down, be it based on their race, their gender, any perceived notions of that other masculinity. It's, hey, I am in this position of power. My job is to be a leader and is to lift you up. And for some reason... Elwood just has that ingrained in his DNA Mm -hmm. and it's such a beautiful character trait and 
a truly a lovely young man to read about. I think that's one of the joys of this book. There's so much that happens which is terrible, but there are these beacons of humanity and of strength and of masculinity that shine through that regardless of what happens here, I think it leaves the reader with a very powerful image. And I'm sure we'll get into that some more in our next three episodes here. So I think we're going to wrap things up here. As always, I'd like to thank the Stardust Lounge and Edgar Bergamot on the piano. I know you're drinking a Negroni right now. It's Negroni week as we're recording this. I'm just drinking straight Bushmills because we decided not to do a themed cocktail this time. We're just going to drink to get through this because this is a pretty serious novel, but an important one and one we're really honored to be covering here on Literary Guys. But it wouldn't be much of a discussion if we didn't have those of you listening out there weighing in. So please reach out to us at Literary Guys across all forms of social media. We want to hear from you. We want you to be a part of this dialogue. Otherwise, it's just two men in a vacuum having a conversation. So with that, until next time when we talk about more of what's happening at Nickel Academy now that Elwood becomes more acclimated to life at Nickel. Until then, we are Literary Guys, signing off.